This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Our government recognizes that housing rights are human rights. I think it's inexcusable for a country as prosperous as Canada that we have you know, a large chunk of our population in Hamilton, about one-fifth of our population, at or below the poverty line, struggling to, uh, to make choices between food and rent. This is a federal crisis. It's a serious crisis. We see the government make an announcement, which is at a time when we need bold action. What we're seeing is basically a, a timid plan. The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. My name's Rick Samprin. In for Bill today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You heard him off the top introducing a national housing strategy. He says he wants to reduce homelessness by 50% and help more than half a million Canadian families meet core housing needs. Those targets affirmed in the strategy announced yesterday, along with the upcoming legislation to make housing a fundamental right. He says housing is a human right. The plan includes $40 billion in spending over a decade, which will help build around 100,000 new affordable homes and repair an existing 260,000. Although, and you know this was coming, experts say the plan is a good first step, but doesn't go far enough for several reasons. Our first guest on this topic, Peter Milchin, Minister of Housing and Minister Responsible for the Poverty Reduction Strategy here in the province of Ontario, and joins us now. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Is this plan the best foot forward from the government? Uh, We're very happy to see the federal government uh, back as a serious partner in providing uh, housing and affordable housing uh, in the country and uh, here in Ontario. Uh, We worked uh, very hard over the last number of months uh, with them to ensure that uh, the funding uh, for existing um, social housing, whether it's municipally owned or nonprofits or co-ops, that that was uh, maintained as those 30- and 40-year-old federal uh, agreements were coming to an end. Uh, this uh, strategy uh, secures the long-term uh, stability of all of our existing housing stock, which means that uh, they'll have money to reinvest in capital repairs and also to maintain um, affordable rents. Uh, it also uh, will help us uh, build more affordable housing, um, do, do top-ups uh, for uh, the refurbishment of uh, some of the existing stock that is in, in poor repair. It's going to help us with our initiative uh, here in Ontario to end chronic homelessness by 2025 with uh, programs that not just build housing but provide uh, wraparound supports. Uh, for for those people who need them in uh, supportive housing. Uh, And we will uh, see, I I hope, uh, more uh, purpose-built rental housing built as well uh, through some of the programs around uh, the low-interest loans uh, and other elements uh, of the strategy. It's uh, it's what Ontario had been asking for. Um, You know, to those who say it's not enough, well, it's never enough. Uh, we also had a, a, f- a previous federal government for a number of years that did virtually nothing in the sphere, so we are playing catch-up. But this is uh, a $40 billion plan. Ontario will get its fair share out of this, and we'll be able to, to make uh, some real progress in Ontario in provi- terms of pro- providing affordable housing to those uh, who need it. It aligns very well with our fair housing plan. Um, 
So uh, we're, we're very pleased with what we saw today. The devil will be in the details, which will be worked out over the coming months as to exactly how much money we're getting and, and when we're getting it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the direction is certainly the right direction. One of those critics is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who called the plan timid and says we need action now, referring to the, the bulk of this investment coming after the next federal election. What do you say to that? Well, uh, I don't know uh, how uh, anybody could suggest that you could spend $40 billion in one year and build housing in one year and and do all the repairs in one year. So it has to be a multi-year plan. We need that strong, firm federal commitment so that we can uh, budget in the long term so that those who want to plan to to build new stock uh, can, can start applying, can start planning for it and know that there will be money uh, for them uh, when they're ready to put shovels in the ground. So uh, it's it's kind of uh, silly uh, to say that you need action now. This is action now. Uh, it is action now because it sends the signal that we can start uh, planning and, and building for the future. And uh, over the course of the next decade, there will be significant uh, new housing built, and a lot of her existing stock uh, will be refurbished. Uh, here in Hamilton, there's a wait list to get into affordable housing of uh, 6,000 strong. Do you see that completely being deleted over the next decade? Well, uh, you have to look at uh, what we're doing with Ontario's Fair Housing Plan and now the National Housing Strategy and a number of other initiatives. You have to look at it together. Uh, you know, yesterday uh, we passed uh, the 148, which will uh, dramatically increase the minimum wage. That's going to help a lot of uh, low-income people to pay their rent, to make it more affordable for them uh, to live, coupled with free tuition, coupled with uh, expansion of pharmacare, to those who are uh, under 25. All of these elements together help make uh, life more affordable for a lot of Ontarians, uh, which helps them them rise out of, uh, you know, chronic uh, poverty and in many cases out of homelessness as well because there will be more supports in place uh, through supportive housing uh, to assist them. So you, you have to look at it all together. Housing in and of itself isn't the only solution. You need these other aspects uh, to come into place as well, so people have better incomes, better jobs, more secure employment. All of that's going to help, and I'm confident that in Hamilton and other communities across uh, the province, that over the coming years, uh, that we uh, we will see those wait lists uh, decline. We will see a lot more people in, in secure, affordable housing, which is what my number one goal is uh, for Ontarians. Minister Milchin, I hope we had a little more time today, but we don't. Appreciate your time uh, this morning. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. You too. Peter Milchin, Minister of Housing and the Minister responsible for the Poverty Reduction Strategy here in Ontario. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Working jointly with provinces and territories to design something that meets local needs, the CHB will be a new tool to fight the challenge of housing affordability. We know that the issue of housing is an issue of today, right now. There's 1.7 million Canadians that don't have access to adequate housing. We can't wait for funding. We need it now. Prime Minister and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh once again talking about uh, yesterday's announcement 
of Canada's new national housing strategy. The Liberals creating a new housing benefit to go directly to low-income tenants, spend billions of dollars to repair existing affordable housing units, and find a way to build 100,000 more units as part of this strategy. Rick Samprin in for Bill Kelly today. This is the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You heard the Prime Minister yesterday and earlier on in our newscast on 900 CHML. Housing rights are human rights. Yes, it makes sense. Here to shed a little more light on what this strategy means for Hamilton is Renee Westelar, Senior Social Planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. And Renee joins us now. Good morning, Renee. Good morning, Rick. How are you today? I'm fine yourself. I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Will this plan work? Can it end homelessness? Well, certainly, uh, you know, we would like to say uh, that this kind of investment can end homelessness, but that is a very, very complex question, and homelessness is very complex, and it affects people differently. So, you know, maybe we'll park that one aside for a moment here, but there is certainly a lot in this plan that uh, we've been uh, asking for, and uh, the time has come to certainly implement it. So how can this end homelessness? If we can't definitively say this will bring an end, what has to happen? So, um, you know, part, core, a core part of this plan talks about Housing First, and Housing First is an initiative that really has started over the last few years, mandated by the federal government through the Homeless Partnering Strategy. And essentially, the whole idea is that, uh, you know, uh, people who are experiencing homelessness experience it for a myriad of reasons, like I said, um, but uh, those reasons are uh, can be solved or fixed if people have uh, safe, affordable, and accessible housing in their lives. For example, if um, somebody is experiencing acute mental health issues, uh, being homelessness doesn't necessarily help if you can get somebody housed, settled in their home, own home and provide them the supports that they need to live, live a full and healthy life, then certainly it reduces the risk of homelessness and can address people remaining uh, out of the homeless system. You mentioned that there are some items within this national housing strategy that the SPRC wanted and are now seeing. What were some of those items? Well, certainly uh, providing a gender lens on this work. You know, we read through and just a quick scan uh, uh, from Sarah Mayo, who is also a senior planner with the SPRC. It looks like, you know, there's possibly 25% of funding allocated to women and families. So putting uh, a gender lens on this work is really important. Uh, the section on uh, Not About Us Without Us uh, speaks to the Indigenous strategy and certainly the SPRC in its role with the local Indigenous community has been working to fight homelessness in that uh, segment of our population for quite a long time. Um, we're looking at uh, land banking. We've been uh, working locally with the Hamilton uh, Community Land Trust on land banking, and uh, you know they have successfully secured their first piece of land at 278 Wilson for affordable housing. Um, there's talk about a community-based tenant initiative, and, and that would also then involve community development support, which is something that we're involved in across uh, priority neighborhoods in the city, and we see the benefits of having community developers work with tenants to improve housing conditions and also advocate on their own behalf. Um, we see a national housing benefit. So although that uh, the plan for that is not to, to be implemented until 2020, the idea of having a portable benefit so that people can have choice uh, and make their own decisions on where they wish to live is certainly a bonus as well. 
Um, so, and then the, the last little bit, we've heard from our social providing, social housing provider friends, you know, all the concerns about their operating agreements with CMHC ending. There's good news in there for them that they can now start to access loans, even if some of those operating agreements are ending now. So, you know, there's uh, stuff that we've been working on. And then, uh, of course, as you said, right at the start, housing as a human right. So legislating the conversation around housing and making it a human right is something that we've been talking about for years. We're chatting with Renee Westelar, Senior Social Planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. You mentioned the gender lens. Why is that so important? Why is that piece uh, in this strategy so important? Um, so locally here in Hamilton, uh, we've been working with the Women's Housing Planning Collaborative for a number of years now and really coming to understand how uh, gender uh, impacts how people experience homelessness. So when I say that women experience homelessness differently than, say, men do, um, there are different reasons why they experience homelessness. Certainly violence against women is uh, is a big factor in all of that work. And I think VAW is mentioned specifically in the plan as part of the whole strategy. Um, but women also uh, have uh, kind of the issue of homelessness that's not always seen. So couch surfing, making difficult decisions around relationships, getting involved in the sex trade, all that kind of stuff adds a different di- dimension and dynamic. Women's presence on the streets, streets are not safer for uh, women than they are for men. So again, all of these comp complexities uh, add to a dimension that means that you have to have a gender lens on this work. We heard from uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger in our newscast uh, yesterday and today saying that uh, you know the city of Hamilton has not yet met its target of 300 new affordable rental units per year. It's getting there, 102 so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, is mm-hmm. this strategy going to accelerate that? I think it certainly will. I know a lot of the folks that we work with who are looking to develop new projects uh, you know, and have started working towards having things shovel ready, are go- have been waiting for this and certainly will be looking for ways to access the funding fairly soon. I think uh, there is another funding announcement or federal announcement happening this morning at 9 a.m. here in Hamilton. I'm not sure what those details are, uh, but a number of social housing providers were invited to that. Um, but then locally, you know, I think we have the uh, added uh, interesting benefit of LRT that's, uh, you know, going to be developing in Hamilton. And in terms of affordable housing, what uh, can we use uh, the LRT as a kind of uplift uh, around affordable housing? So if there's land that's going to be acquired or any um, land that's going to be sort of uh, put together and assembled, can those lands be used for affordable housing? Is there a proportion of that land that can be devoted to that? So can we use that economic opportunity that's coming to the city to leverage against the federal funds? So there's different things that are going on at the same time, and certainly we need to kind of drive on that conversation now. We have about uh, 40 seconds. Just wanted to get your reaction to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh calling this plan timid and saying he wanted more action uh, sooner. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on that is that um, the numbers around core housing need here locally have gone up. So in 2011, 11% of the Hamilton population faced core housing need. According to statistics that CMHC uh, gave us yesterday, in 2016, the core housing need for Hamiltonians has gone up to 13%. So that's a 2% increase over five years. The numbers aren't going the right way. So yeah, you know, things aren't going to be happening fast enough in our community. Certainly, this is not the time to say, 
you know, it's a terrible plan because I don't think it's a terrible plan. There's a lot of really great things in there, but uh, the need is acute. So homelessness, you know, is an everyday experience for people. So I think we need to always remind ourselves that the uh, lived experience means that we need to accelerate the work. We can definitely call this a good first step, that's for sure. Renee, thanks for the time today. Okay, thanks very much, Rick. Renee Westelar is a senior social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, shedding a little bit of light from the ground floor and what this means to Hamilton on Canada's new and, I guess, upcoming national housing strategy. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The purpose of spending $80 million on two new GO stations in Hamilton is not to provide photo ops for Liberal politicians. The purpose is to provide frequent GO service that Hamiltonians have been promised for years. Hamiltonians are calling them ghost stations. Uh, We're going to be talking about ghost stations here in a matter of seconds. What are they? They're in our city, don't you know? You might not even realize it. (laughs) Rick Samprin here in for Bill Kelly. This is the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Thanks for joining us. Hamilton Mountain NDP MPP Monique Taylor calling out the win government yesterday. All in regards to improving GO service to Hamilton. We have heard for years now that we're going to get all-day, two-way GO service. Is it happening? What's going on? Why are our GO stations, including a new one just down the street, sitting idle? We're joined now by the Hamilton Mountain New Democrat MPP, Monique Taylor, on The Bill Kelly Show. Monique, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Yesterday you stood tall in uh, the uh, provincial legislature and you asked a variety of questions regarding Hamilton's new GO stations that are sitting empty for most of the day. What did you find out? Not much. Um, that they, they continued, they, he talked about the plan that they've been talking about for years, that, uh, you know, that they're, they're building new ones uh, down the corridor to Niagara. We're excited about that, but we want to see some trains um, in those stations to ensure that people can actually get back and forth and stop all the congestion that we're seeing on our highways. You're referring to uh, Minister of Transportation Stephen Del Duca, who did not indicate uh, whether or not the government uh, will be increasing service in the near future, but he did say that Metrolinx is working with CN and CP to extend the line through the Lakeshore West Corridor. So we know that work's being done, we're just not seeing any of the results, I guess. Exactly, and we have a beautiful station that is sitting empty most of the day um, downtown. We now have two stations uh, downtown that uh, see very sparse um, action uh, and uh, not very many trains. I mean, we have a couple that leave in the morning and a couple that come back at night. Other than that, they're sitting empty. What prompted you to uh, introduce this question or, or bring this issue to the Transportation Minister's attention and, and to all those at Queen's Park? Absolutely. Well, it was um, it was highlighted in the media last week. We know that we have city council and our mayor um, are asking the questions. And quite frankly, I hear from people on a regular basis that they really need this two-way all-day go um, to be able to get to and from work, to be able to not sit in their vehicles, to not have to drive to Aldershot, to be able to get on a train. Uh, we've been promised it for years, and it's time that the government acted. 
instead of uh, leaving them sit empty. And you know what? It's not like the the province has said, uh, hey, Hamilton, you're on your own. I mean, we we have, you know, us, the province, uh, taxpayers have invested a lot of money into improving or building new go stations in Hamilton. What's your best guesstimate on, on why it hasn't happened yet? I can't answer for the Premier. I know that people are disappointed that uh, she makes a lot of promises uh, when it's convenient, um, but doesn't follow through on those promises. And it's just another uh, form of that that we're seeing again. Uh, in 2014, I remember so clearly, I probably in 2011, I, I was knocking on doors and we were talking about two-way all-day go, and the Premier was making promises then. Um, and here we are, 2017's almost over, and we still don't have that service seems to be a disconnect but they're you know they've talked about and and they've asked you know we we see the proof is in the pudding a lot of money has been put into making our transportation uh, linkages strong and here's a perfect example of how we can take advantage how we can uh you know push people to new employment uh, get people to expand uh, you know their their living base uh make more money be more prosperous yet they're they're dropping the ball What, what would an ndp government do in this regard Oh, absolutely. Uh, we are completely committed uh, to the two-way all-day go um, and to ensuring that we do have that passageway all the way to Niagara um, and ensuring that people can get around and that they can explore those new job types or they can get to the jobs that they're currently driving to. Um, it, it's a game-changer uh, for the Niagara region and right through Hamilton, and we need to ensure, and we will ensure, that uh, that, that service is available. We're chatting with uh, Monique Taylor, Hamilton Mountain, that new Democrat MPP here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. Um, do you get the? I get the sense. I don't. I don't want to speak for you, but I'll ask you the question. I get the sense that the government, uh, in in certain respects, with certain issues, are holding back until uh, it is advantageous to them, i.e., next year's provincial election, that they'll unveil you know new plans, new tidbits of uh, of uh, you know information or, or, or issues that can help uh, the general public. This might be one of those. Come next spring, hey Hamilton, you're getting all day two way, and and this time we mean it. Do you get that sense as well? Rick, that happens quite often around here. We see announcements are flying out the door on a daily basis. Um, You can definitely tell that there's an election uh, coming very quickly, and the Premier is desperate and is uh, making announcements daily. Uh, So would it surprise me uh, for her to come out with that announcement right before the election? No, but she's made that announcement before and time and again. So... Are people trusting what she has to say these days? I don't think so. Um, not from what I'm hearing uh, for on the doors, that's for sure, and not what I see uh, since my six years uh, being here. Um, there's been lots of promises, but lots of broken promises. I don't want to throw a, a huge curveball at you, but yesterday we had a national housing strategy that was handed out by the, the Trudeau Liberals. Just uh, at first blush, your, your thoughts on that program and how it can help people in Hamilton? Well, I haven't actually had a chance to review it, Rick. Um, I have to apologize to you for that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to looking at it. Uh, we need a housing strategy. We, um, right across this entire province and in, at home in Hamilton, we see so many folks who uh, just can't afford to, to keep up with the rent. We're, we have thousands of families on wait lists uh, waiting for subsidized housing. 
housing and we have way too many folks who are homeless and not able to to get into that um, into that home so uh, you know I'm looking forward to actually looking at the report and hoping that it will make a difference and taking the pressures off of our our shelters and um, off of the folks who really are um, you know making tent cities we we need a strategy and um, I'm hopeful that uh, that it will do something to to better our folks last one for you on the uh, the all-day uh, two-way go service uh, do you plan to keep the fire burning on this issue at Queen's Park uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, people are tired of being let down by this government. Uh, we've, like I said, we've been promised time and time again, and it's important that uh, that we have these services that we've been promised. And um, so we'll keep the fire on them, um, and I'm sure expect an announcement to uh, come closer to the election. I hope so. I mean, Niagara is in the same boat too, right? Exactly. Um, like I said, it's it's been a promise, and it's many communities. Uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, Windsor, all of these um, regions have been promised all of this uh, transit, and it's promise after promise. It's photo ops. It's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of talk, uh, but no action, and absolutely no trains. A lot of sizzle and no stick. That's it. <laughs> Monique, thanks for the time today. Thanks for your attention, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Monique Taylor is the New Democrat uh, member of Provincial Parliament uh, for Hamilton Mountain, talking about uh, this, uh, uh, what I think is an important issue, and an issue that a lot of Hamiltonians are looking at to say, wait a minute here, yes, we do have a new GO station at the West Harbor site. We're we're getting a new one on Centennial Parkway that's going to connect us even further. But, I mean, those are fine and dandy, and I think they're phenomenal Uh, venues or facilities, but at the end of the day, they are built for a reason, and that was to house more travelers, to get more people on the go, to get less cars on the road, uh, to curb pollution, uh, reduce gridlock, uh, get people moving to their place of employment or back home. Uh, All those elements are encapsulated in this issue, And, and to not have all day two-way service on a consistent basis, I think the government's missing a mark here, missing a huge mark. And maybe by the time next year's provincial election rolls around, which is in June, I think it's June 7th, uh, maybe the government will sit down to say, hey, you know, this is an important issue, not only for the people of Hamilton, but yes, those in Niagara, all the other communities that Monique Taylor mentioned, KW being a, a huge one, thinking of all the the high-paying Uh, Great jobs in KW and those people wanting to travel to and from there, whether they live there or not. This is an issue that has to be um, ironed out, hammered down, and really uh, put to bed. I mean, we need all-day, two-way go service because there's a lot of individuals that, yes, are driving right now, but I think if they had their druthers, they'd probably say, you know what, yeah, I'll jump on the go. That's going to save me some time, probably save me a lot of money, save (laughs) save me a lot of stress, that's for sure, instead of going bumper to bumper for two hours uh, there and back. Uh, there being Toronto or anywhere kind of in between here and T.O. Uh, so this is an issue that uh, hopefully, as she said, Monique Taylor will keep an eye on and keep the fires burning on. And uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that the province realizes that uh, this is in fact needed and uh, they'll act upon it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. 
This Sunday, huge day in the nation's capital. It is the 105th Grey Cup between the Toronto Argonauts and the Calgary Stampeders. I know fans in this neck of the woods not too happy that the double blue are in the big game, but lo and behold, they are. Mike Lucatour is our global national Ottawa correspondent and joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Mike, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Not too bad. Surrounded by football players here at Media Day uh, and, you know, trying to avoid being tackled by them as opposed to what I'm used to, which is normally trying to tackle politicians on Parliament Hill. So a little bit of a different feel to my day today, to be honest with you, Rick. Role reversal. Uh, let's talk about security because that's always a hot topic uh, regard or around big events. What's the security detail like this year? Keeping it close to their vest, uh, Ottawa is. But given that we've gone through Canada 150 celebrations all year, big celebrations for Canada Day. You can expect that it'll be similar in that way. Uh, expect to see roads around the Grey Cup blocked off with uh, big dump trucks full of sand. Those are to try and uh, thwart any kind of ramming type of terrorist attacks. Uh, and other than that, I think because this has a really, you know, sort of community feel to it, they're going to try and make it very subtle. Uh, the fact that you have the Grey Cup festivities going down at Lansdowne Park, which is about three kilometers from where I am right now at the Shaw Center um, and it is really sort of an area that you can close off to just pedestrian foot traffic and I think that that's what they're going to try and do make sure that all of those areas are closed off uh, and so that people don't see it as much and just have that kind of festive feel to the whole time. Another highlight on Sunday is the halftime show and it's pretty cool to see uh, Shania Twain back on the big stage. It will be, yeah, and of course a lot of people looking forward to that, not just the game. I mean, oftentimes the halftime show is just as interesting as the game. Uh, but yeah, th that is something that, that you know a lot of people in this city are looking forward to. And to be honest with you, this city is really going to do everything it can to show that it is a CFL city once again. You know that the Red Blacks only came back a few years ago, but the buzz is starting to build. I've, I've joked a lot with people that Ottawa is the town that fun forgot, but they're trying to really come out in droves, <laughs> Make sure that people understand that this is a football city sellout TD place and show uh, the rest of Canada that, you know, they care. And we're starting to see people arriving from different cities across Canada. You know, Ryder Nation will be out here. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a really healthy contingent of uh, Thai Cats fans coming out as well. Because uh, if you've ever been to a Grey Cup, you know that it's not just the fans from the two cities that are competing. It's fans from every city. Uh, interesting to note, Rick, uh, I've covered a couple of Grey Cups back when I worked in Montreal and I remember this one guy who comes over from Scotland and I will give you one guess as to what his favorite team is. Uh, I'm going to go with the Alouettes? <laughs> no. It is the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Wow, nice. Believe it or not, he's got the jacket and everything. He makes sure that he comes out to every Grey Cup. It's marked down on his calendar every single year. Makes the trip over the pond and uh, comes out to see some good old CFL action. That's amazing. And maybe most importantly, the weather is going to participate. It's not going to be crazy cold on Sunday. Not crazy cold, but I'll be honest with you. Um, if you've ever seen a game at Lansdowne or TD Place, it is a bit of a wind corridor. So, yes, it's not going to be as bad as maybe when the games, uh, the Hamilton games are being held in Guelph. But there is a bit of a wind factor uh, that, you know, you'll have to contend with because it right it, it is right on the canal. And uh, I, I think it'll be chilly enough, but people in Ottawa know how to dress for it. And hopefully the Toronto fans will have brought winter coats and understand that we are in a winter zone here, guys. Uh, so if anybody's coming from Hamilton, Toronto, 
make sure you dress for it, please, because it's going to be chilly. Even though it's it's only looking like it's going to be minus two and a possibility of snow, I think that's what everybody wants to see with this type of game. And it can't be a gray cup if the weather doesn't it doesn't affect it at least a little, right? Very true. Last one for you, Argo Stamps. Who's going to win? You know, I gotta, I, I probably gotta tip it to the Stamps at this point. They had that great start to the season. Uh, and, you know, I'm surrounded by Argos right now, so maybe I should only be whispering <laughs> this. But I, I'm gonna have to give it to the West at this point. Awesome. Mike, thanks for the time. Enjoy the game on Sunday. Thanks very much. You guys too. Mike LeCouture, a global national Ottawa corresponding, uh, correspondent, joining us from the nation's capital here on 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The head of the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, that is the FCC, unveiled plans on Tuesday to scrap landmark 2015 rules intended to ensure a free and open Internet moving to give broadband service providers sweeping power over what content consumers can access. This is pretty deep stuff. If you don't live in this world, you're probably thinking, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean when I want to go to Google or Facebook or Twitter if I'm using my laptop or my desktop? Can I still do it? Can I do it on my phone? What is net neutrality? Well, here to shed a little bit of light or Perhaps a lot of light on this issue is Ryan Single, Media and Strategy Fellow at the Center for Internet and Society, Stanford Law School. And he joins us now. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm um, great, Rick. Thanks for having me on. So what's happening here? What's going on with this net neutrality? What does this mean? Yeah, great question. Um, so net neutrality is the principle that um, people who get on the Internet should be able to get to the content, to the websites, to use the apps uh, of their choice without interference from the companies that they pay to get online. So companies like, uh, you know, Rogers or TELUS or AT&T and Verizon. Um, and what happened on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, is that the current FCC chairman uh, decided to make a radical choice to undo about 20 years of uh, practice in the United States that uh, kept those companies, right, that we pay to get online, from messing with, like, what people are able to get to online. So is this going to set us back, or is this uh, progressive moves? Where do we stand here? Oh, I think this is a radical step backward. Um, you know, the, the when the Internet started, the, the architecture of it uh, kind of enforced this principle, right? It wasn't possible for uh, the people you paid to get online to, to mess with where you went. Uh, and then in the United States, uh, you know, the FCC, um, even under Republican leadership, realized that, you know, there was a really vibrant market online. Like, you could, people could launch services, people could, you know, uh, create websites, um, and they didn't need permission from anybody. It was an amazing, innovative ecosystem, uh, but realized that the companies that we paid to get online could have pretty good reasons to try and mess with that, and economic ones or political ones. Uh, and so they've always had an oversight role over those companies, trying to make sure that they didn't mess with this, you know, that ecosystem that people were really trying to get to, right? Like, we don't go online because we like, you know, 18 to Verizon. We go online because we love Google or YouTube or Facebook or, you know, a uh, favorite political blog. So the question, and, and, and I mean, we can ask this question with any issue here, but uh, the question boils down to why. Why are these rules changing? What, what does the government see as the benefit to changing these rules? 
Great question. Um, so Chairman Pai um, believes that if you lifted um, all of the, you know, so the, the sort of three bright brain line rules, right? So the rules are basically uh, no blocking. Uh, you can't create fast lanes and slow lanes, right? And you can't charge sites just that, uh, you know, that access. So for, you know, for Google, that would mean pay Verizon just so Verizon customers can go to Google search. Um, so those rules get lifted. Um, the chairman believes that those rules um, stifle the amount of investment that goes into the network. And he thinks that if Verizon and, you know, uh, companies like Rogers and Talos can bargain with YouTube, uh, that that creates some sort of interesting market um, place. Uh, I don't buy that, you know, buy that at all. Um, so this is sort of pitched as a, like a huge deregulatory, we're going to like uh, make things more interesting because we have free markets. Um, and I think the, it, it's, not a, it's not a compelling argument. So why don't you buy it? What are some of the red flags that you see? Sure. Um, so there's um, lots of uh, things that uh, those uh, you know, large uh, broadband companies can do. And, you know, one, there's not a whole lot of competition. Here in the U.S., um, you know, over 51% of Americans have either zero or one choice of broadband providers. So they don't have a whole lot of choice. If they don't like what their broadband provider is doing, they don't really have anywhere else to go. So these companies are in a position where um, they could, for instance, start to block Netflix until Netflix played them, paid them a lot of money. Um, and uh, under this plan, they'd be allowed to do that. And there would be literally nothing you, can, you could do uh, if you know, your broadband provider started doing this. Um, two, we've seen, uh, we've seen what happened uh, when companies do this, um, or sort of when Broadband providers are allowed to do this. Europe, for instance, uh, had no sort of net neutrality protections or sort of regime uh, from about 2009 to 2016. Uh, and then in the case, you know, if you wanted to use WhatsApp, uh, you had to pay $5 uh, a month more. Uh, and they would do that because telecoms, you know, for the Verizons and at ts of the world wanted to protect their business of you, you know, paying for their text messages. Um, and that's just not what people want. Like people just want to be able to pay one, you know, one amount of money. They know what it is every month, and get to everything on the internet. And they want it, you know, to get to it as much as they can. And that's really served us well, right? The the growth of all the things that people want to do on the internet has made more people buy broadband service, you know, providers and more people online. The more customers there are for people that create new services. So we have this sort of like nice virtuous circle going right now. Uh, and sort of going backwards, uh, you know, undoing 20 years of what people expect on the Internet doesn't make any sense. There's not a market failure, right? There's, there's nothing broken in the Internet. So undoing it, uh, I think, is just a, is a, is a drastic radical um, shift that, you know, literally no one wants except Verizon and AT&T. We're chatting with uh, Ryan Single, Media and Strategy Fellow at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill today. So this could have a financial impact to users, to people out there who are surfing the web? It could. I mean, what we might see is um, we're going to start to move to a point where you have to buy sort of little little packages and add-ons the same way you do with your cable, right? When you have to sort of make your decisions, do I get... 37 channels or 50 channels or 80 channels and do we get those channels in HD or not, right? So, you know, and like, nobody likes that process, right? Like people just want like, give me everything that's out there and make it fast uh, and I will pay you a good amount of money, right? The, um, you know, what you've seen is, you know, people just 
people are willing to pay for faster speeds and, you know, for unlimited access, what we want to, you know, so moving to that sort of, you know, choose your own little snippet of the internet that you're going to get. It's just not a decision anybody really wants to have to make on a, like a monthly basis. Could this possibly uh, create more or less competition among those providers who are who are giving us, uh, you know, our, our internet or broadband services? Uh, so you know that's that's the argument that um, you know the the chairman makes is that you know if we have you know people can choose these various plans, uh, we'll have more competition. Um, I don't think we're going to, um, you know, possibly mobile, but, you know, in, at least in, you know, the, the kind of broadband that we get at home, uh, you can't just instantly ramp up competition, right? It's, it's expensive to lay the cables and build the service that, you know, people want to subscribe to. So at most people have maybe one or two choices. So I don't think we're going to see more competition there. Um, you know, what we have seen in the U.S. is, you know, in since 2015, um, we've seen uh, enough competition and, and where the competition has gone is more, you know, it's just the providers offering you unlimited. Um, and, and that's great. Uh, you know, I think that's really just what people want. Uh, I don't see how, you know, having, uh, you know, broadband providers that can slow down YouTube or um, make, uh, you know, Spotify a $5 uh, additional add-on uh, is going to spur competition. Uh, I think what we're, we're just going to see is that this is going to be a, an, a way for uh, a very consolidated industry to suck more money out of people's pocketbooks. Got a couple minutes uh, of, uh, of time left here. What, what are the heavy hitters saying, the, the Googles, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, YouTube, and on and on? What are those companies saying? Great question. Um, so those companies uh, were huge leaders in this fight. This is a fight that's been going on for, you know, 15 years. Um, they were really the, the leaders in, you know, say 2008 up uh, to say about 2011. Uh, they had a lot to lose, right? Um, and recently in, in 2013, uh, the cable companies and the ISPs in the United States did some very sneaky slowing down of Netflix to try and find ways to get them to pay up, right? To essentially pay Verizon so that uh, uh, customers could go. So they're opposed to it, uh, but they're also point they're so big that they could afford to pay these access fees. So if they had to pay Verizon, they can afford to do it. Um, and unfortunately, that would mean that uh, startups and innovative companies uh, would have a much harder time competing with the Googles and the Facebooks and the Netflix and Amazons of the world because those companies can afford to pay the tolls. Startups can't. So to their credit, uh, they are opposed, but they're not the ones that are spearheading the opposition in the United States. It's really coming out of small businesses, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, civil rights groups, free speech groups. Um, so we're glad that they are, their voices are out there, but this is not a battle that's just between Google uh, and Verizon, right? Uh, they would just pay Verizon, um, but it's the startups that, you know, one guy in, comes up with an idea, buys a $50 server, and then all of a sudden he's got to pay six different ISPs, uh, you know, $100 a month just so people could download his app. That's not a world that um, entrepreneurs want to live in. Ryan, appreciate the time today. Great, in, great insight. 
Great. Thank you, Greg. Ryan Single, Media and Strategy Fellow at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, shedding a little more light on this uh, net neutrality issue. Big vote coming up December 14th from the FCC chair, and it looks like it's just going to be uh, rammed down our throats. What else is new? The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.